Church family, as we continue to worship, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word or take the Pew Bible in front of you and turn with me to Paul's first epistle to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be there for the months to come as we head into Advent, and uh, we will be in Paul's first epistle to the church at Thessalonica. Then the Pew Bible, I think it is, number. I picked up the Pew Bible as I was walking up here. I think it's page number 986. If you just want to find it real quickly there, 986 is going to get you close to 1 Thessalonians, if not exactly to the first chapter. That's where we're going to be this morning. Reminded this morning of a trip that I took with one of our boys a few years ago. We went to Chicago. It's an annual Eldridge pilgrimage me and one of my boys, when they turn 10, all three of them, we've done this now. We go to Chicago, hit a Cubs game, some of the museums we get to go by and see. We're at the Field Museum. And if you've not been to the Field Museum, the Field Museum, to give you some kind of correlation to it, if you've seen Ben Stiller's uh, Night at the Museum, you get sort of the, uh, the displays at the Field Museum. You've got display after display after display of replicas of rhinos and polar bears and black bears and giraffes and zebras. You've got the prehistoric cavemen and their habitat there. When one of my boys looked at me, we were about 30 minutes into this one after the other, and he said, Dad, can, can we just go somewhere where the things are actually real? It was really saying, can we go to the zoo? And, the, and if you don't know this, and the, the zoo is free in Chicago. So I said, amen, yes, we'll go to the zoo. And so uh, now I, I'm reminded of that question because when I tell you to turn to 1 Thessalonians, when I, uh, I tell you to open your copy of God's Word, is the first thing that we do week in and week out. You might be tempted to think that we are going on a, 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 a pilgrimage to a religious museum. You might be tempted to believe that this is just a bunch of ancient artifacts that seem to have little or no connection to your life or my life. You might be tempted to sort of yawn your way. Here we have Paul writing 2,000 years ago to people in faraway place and land. But we just need to be reminded of how wrong we are with those sentiments. That the Word of God is living and it's active And when we study the Word of God, but more than that, when we submit to the authority of God's Word, it transforms us, it shapes us, it molds us, it makes us into new men and women over time. This is why we submit to God's Word as our authority. This is why we say, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians. And what we're going to hear over the weeks is that the pressures that you feel have some correlation to the pressures that 2,000 years ago the, the Christians in Thessalonica felt. That They felt persecution. They felt opposition. They felt the threat to minimize their faith, to move away from their faith. And what you understand is in a variety of ways, while the detour, details are distinctive, no doubt, those same pressures and those same uh, temptations are, are alive and well that Paul was writing about 2,000 years ago, and they intersect our life in a living, breathing, real way. So we open up God's word and we say, Speak, Lord, for we, your servants, are listening. Hear, hear the word of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, Savinus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, and God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And let's just put just a a period there for just a second. 
We have three co-authors that are introduced in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You probably think, well, I thought Paul wrote this. Well, we have. We have Silvanus and Timothy. Uh, next to Silvanus, you need to know that's Silas. So in the book of Acts, Luke is reporting the, the planting of churches. And we've got Paul and Silas that are working together, sent out by the church uh, into Macedonia and beyond. And what we have is, is, is Silas is the Greek name. Silvanus is the Latinized version here. So when you've got Silvanus, you've got Silas here. Now go back to, I thought it was just Paul writing this letter. No, he's got three co-authors. We can't pull apart what is Timothy is saying, what Silas is saying here. There is an interesting part of this letter that we begin to see that Paul emerges as the, as the primary author. And it's in three places that are distinctive in chapter 2, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 5, verse 27. We move away from the plural we to the singular I. And Paul is writing from his perspective. So for ease of communication for the weeks to come, we're going to talk about Paul writing this letter, knowing that he had his, his uh, uh, you know, uh, comrades, he had his, his you know, fellow messengers and missionaries that were there with him that are given input to this. But Paul really is the primary author of the book here. Now notice that he begins with gratitude, writing to the church at Thessalonica. And as we start down this journey, it is helpful for us to, to have two things in our mind. The first is the background of the book, and the second is the burden of the book. Who is he writing to? Why is he writing this book? So to get an answer to that, you've got to move out of 1 Thessalonians, and you've got to move to Luke's report and the Acts of the Apostles, starting in chapter 16, going into chapter 17, of the background of this plant, this church in Thessalonica. Do you remember the details of that? Paul and Silas, they go into Philippi. They go to the synagogue. They're not Jewish men there in the city of Philippi. So they go down to the river. They're God-fearing women, Lydia being one of them, that hear the message of the gospel and become a part of the, the original members of the Philippian church there. There is a demon-possessed young lady that Paul casts the demon out of. And when he does that, it creates a stir. It creates the people that own her and are abusing her and monetizing her. They are frustrated because she can't predict the future any longer. So what do they do? They beat Paul. They beat Silas. They throw them into prison. Powerful, powerful passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 16. You find them in the inner throes of this Philippian jail, and they at midnight are doing what? Are they saying, woe is me? God, if you would have told us this would happen, we never would have come here. No, you find them in the inner sanctum of this prison, in this dark, dingy dungeon. And what do they do? They're praising God. They're singing hymns to God. In a powerful way, we read that God breaks them out of prison. There's a Philippian jailer that says, what must I do to be saved? And, he, and he, he's talking about physical salvation because he knows he's going to get in trouble from the Roman uh, superiors of him. But more than that, Paul says, hey, I, I want to talk to you about spiritual salvation. So we have Lydia, this uh, seller of purple. We've got this uh, young lady who's had a demon that was cast out of her. And then we've got this uh, Philippian jailer that all become a part of the, of the first Olin Mills pictorial directory of the church at Philippi. 
And it's just this wonderful story. Paul and Silas, they get out of Philippi. You can imagine them saying, hold on. We need to regroup. We need to slow down. We've got opposition. We've got to recover. We need to, we need to get, go back to Jerusalem, make sure we're all on the same page here. No, that's not what they do. They head to the next largest metropolis there in Macedonia, which we know is modern Greece. It's 100 miles away, and it's Thessalonica. Now, why did they go to Thessalonica? Major. What we think, sometimes wrongly, we read through the Bible, and we see the names of these cities, and we're like, Mayberry, 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 maybe sleepy little towns. That Thessalonica was the, it was the capital of Macedonia. It was the center of commerce. 2,000 years ago, you know what the population of Thessalonica was? It was 200,000 people. This is not a sleepy, little out-of-the-way place here. It has a bustling harbor, trade center, and a major thoroughfare there. So they go to Thessalonica. Why? Because that's where the people were. That's where the influence was. All types of varying religious Ideas are coming to Thessalonica, and Paul says, I want to go where there's opportunities for the gospel to be planted in the most significant cities of that day. And they go to Thessalonica, and you know what they do? They go to synagogue, and they preach the gospel, and people are saved, and a church gets planted. And in Acts chapter 17, we read that the Jewish leaders become jealous and they begin to chase Paul and Silas and Timothy out of there. They flee down to Berea. And they are preaching the gospel there, and the Jewish leaders, they're still jealous. And they, they go and they, they chase Paul, and there are people that, that get Paul and say, Paul, you've got to get out of here. And they take him to Athens, and they leave Timothy, and they leave Silas in Berea. And so why is Paul writing this letter? That's the background, the burden of the letter. One reason that he writes this letter, he was only with them for three weeks. He was only in Thessalonica for three weeks, and one of the burdens of the letter is to express his devotion. In verses 2 and 3, we read of the sincere love that Paul has for the Christians who become sons and daughters of the Apostle Paul and of Silas and of Timothy. I don't know if you have a person or two people or three people who are sort of your spiritual fathers. It actually might be your biological father. It actually might be your biological mother. What I'm talking about is the person who shared the gospel with you, who loved you and walked with you and prayed with you. And when you look back over your conversion, you think not of Paul, you think not of Silas, you think not of Timothy, but you think of that coworker. You think of that Sunday school teacher. You think of that youth minister. You think of that brother or sister, that mother or that father who loved you enough to share with you what Paul, Silas, and Timothy shared with the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago. And there's a kinsmanship. There's a love that's deep and it goes beyond blood kin. There's a supernatural connection. And so Paul can be with these people for only three weeks but have this deep connection, this deep love with them. So he is writing, lest they think, that in the middle of the night he leaves because he doesn't love them. He is saying, I love you even though I had to leave. So he's expressing his devotion, but he's also having to instruct them doctrinally. He's only there with them for three weeks. So of course, their truths 
of following Jesus that he never was able to get around to in only the three weeks that he was there. And he's hearing stories because Timothy is going to be there with the Thessalonians. And he comes back to Paul. Paul's probably writing in Corinth, most likely here. And Paul is hearing what they're facing on the ground. And he's writing, hold on, this is what you need to know as you follow Jesus in the midst of your opposition, in the midst of the persecution. So he's laying a doctrinal foundation. He's instructing them in doctrine. He's expressing his devotion. This is the burden. And he's got to counter some deception. The, the, the Jewish leaders, after Paul leaves, they come into this incubational church that is, that is still in the, in the throes of, of infancy, of what it means to follow Jesus, and they begin to spread some lies. They say, hey, where's Paul? I thought he loved you. I thought he had this wonderful message of the gospel. I don't see him. Do you see him? He was only in it, they say, for the money. He was only in it as a charlatan. And now where is he? So Paul is having to counter some deception. He's having to instruct them in doctrine. He's having to express his devotion. This is the burden of the book that is connected to the background in Acts chapter 17. And we'll, we'll begin to see this play out in the coming chapters, in the coming weeks. This gets us then to really the body of Thessalonians. We give thanks, verse 2, to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for our sake. Two truths that I want you to take with you as you leave this morning. The first of which we find in verses 2 through 6. And then it is just simply stated, authentic faith, Dawson, authentic faith produces real change in our life. Where do I see that? Well, I see this all through verses 4 through 6 and verses 9 through 10. After Paul has his customary greeting, of expressing his devotion, his commitment to, and the expressions of gratitude. In this moment, he begins to describe how they received the word of the gospel in verse 5. And notice what he says in verse 5. The gospel came to them not only in word, not only in the language and the communication of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but also with great power. So somebody raises their hand and says, well, what's the source of the great power, Paul? Where's, where's this great power coming from? And he says, I'm glad you asked. Verse 5, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. So the power of the gospel is not found in Paul and Silas and Timothy. It's not in the messengers and their faithfulness. That's important, no doubt. They, they bring the words of the gospel, but it is only the Holy Spirit that can illuminate the, the eyes of the Thessalonians, to see that they're sinners. It's only the Holy Spirit that can convict the heart. It's only the Holy Spirit that can draw them to salvation. And that wasn't just true 2,000 years ago, church, but that's true today. What you are called to do and what I am called to do in our parenting of our children who we want to walk with Jesus, with co-workers who we pray for that they would walk with Jesus, with friends and family members who we pray that would walk with Jesus. Now, we're called. We're called to be messengers But it is ultimately only the power 
of the Holy Spirit that can save. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I I know the Spirit of God has penetrated their hard hearts because I can see the growth. I see that the seed of salvation has been planted because I can look around and see, notice in verse 4, that their faith was alive. You see how Paul describes the fruit of the gospel that's planted in their life. He says that their love was evident. He says that they have enduring hope. He's able to see actual fruit, actual change in their life. So he says in verse four, he knew that they were chosen by God. He knew that they were elected before the foundation of the earth to be followers of Jesus. And how does he know this? Now, Paul throws that in there. And we, we want to raise our hands and say, hold on, Paul. Let's talk a little bit more about election here. Let's talk a little bit more about how they're chosen by God. Let's talk about the theological implications of that. Let's talk about the philosophical implications of that. And Paul says, I, I don't have time for that. I look and I see the fruit of a changed life. And I see that they are of the elect. I see that they've been chosen by God because I can see the fruit of a changed life. I can see the transformation. I can see that there's been a genuine conversion because there's a changed life. And that's true for you and that's true for me. Do you know that, Christian? That Jesus doesn't save us solely when we die so that we can go to heaven, but he saves us that right now here on earth that he would transform us and begin to conform us to look more and more like who? Jesus, that you are a work in progress, that the Spirit of God is not content with who you are right now and how you talk right now, how you think right now. There is a big caution sign on every one of us right here. Caution, work in progress. And you know who the foreman of that work is? It's the Spirit of God. Do you know who will bring it to completion? The Spirit of God. That he, he has a destination for me and you, and that is not for us to look like we look right now. And that doesn't begin just in the great by and by when we get to heaven, but it begins right now. He wants to set us free from sin. He, he wants to change us the way we act and the way we talk and the way that we look so that people could see us and say, man, there are great people. No, so that they would look at the work of God in us and say, what is different about them? And where does that come from? I don't have what they have. And this is what's going on with the Thessalonians. Their salvation is leading to transformation. They talked differently. They thought differently. They treated others in a different way. And it's just the power of the reminder that there is a God for you, Christian, who lives in you. He's taking residence up inside of you, who desires to evict the sin that so easily wants to, wants to move into the living room of your heart. And the Spirit of God, he, he says, no, we gotta, we got to evict that sin. We've got we've to evict that person that wants to be a looter and wants to just live here. No, I'm not going to have it. And God will not give up on you. While we are tempted this side of heaven by the sins of this world, the power of the gospel is is that we are transformed incrementally over time to look more like him. I was reminded of this just a couple of weeks ago. We, we have a church planting partner that we work with as a church down in Montgomery, Strong, Strong Tower. Their parent, uh, pastor is Terrence Jones. Alonzo is their associate pastor. Zach is their student minister now. He's the campus minister at Tuskegee. 
One of the highlights two weeks ago when we took our whole professional staff there was to be in their worship center, which was an old, derelict, abandoned boys and girls club. That five years ago, God brought the resources for them to be able to buy and transform that into a place of hope. And as I was listening, all three of them, their their, uh, pastors, shared of how they became followers of Jesus at Tuskegee University through campus ministry. Their former student pastor, Zach, who is now, as I said, the, the minister, the campus minister at Tuskegee, he, he talked about how before he was a Christian that he would go to the parties at school and he would give himself to the, just the ways of the world. And then he became a Christian. And I love the way he said this. It, it just so stuck with me because so often we don't hear people talk this way. He said, after I became a Christian, I, I went back to those same parties and I was with those same things and we were doing the same thing. And I realized that I, in that moment, found it repulsive. And he used that word, he used that sentiment. I found those things that were a part of my life before I became a Christian repulsive now as I was walking with Jesus, his His cravings changed. His appetite changed. Paul talks about this in this passage here. In verse 9, he says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. A part of our conversion is turning from the ways and the things of the world and embracing the goodness of Jesus. A part of our transformation is that our our spiritual cravings change. And over time, we should crave the things of the world less than we did when we were without Jesus. Do you know one of the ways that you change your taste buds? I mean, you know this. You hear about this. If, if, if you feast upon the junk food of this world and you do that and you do that, the way, the way you change your cravings is not by just giving up the world, but it is by feasting on what is healthy. And, and what happens is, I hear of this, I, I've not really personally experienced this as much, but I hear that if you feast on what is healthy and you feast on what is good, That over time, when you go back to those things that are sugar-laden, when you go back to those things that are the junk food of the world, you have lost your appetite for them. Do you hear what I'm saying, Christian? There's some of us that are here that have been saved by the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we're feasting, not on his word, but on the world. And he's, he's wanting to transform our spiritual taste buds. And the only way that that occurs is when the Spirit of God is working in you and you turn from the idols of this world, the things of this world, and you feast upon him. Christian, this is true of the Thessalonians. Is it true of you? Is it true of me? Notice what this passage is saying, that authentic faith produces real change in our life. But also I want you to see that authentic change or authentic faith produces a life worthy of imitation. This is a minor theme that oftentimes we just skip over completely. And it's easy for us to ignore what Paul is saying in verses 6 through 8. I want you just to hear it. And you became imitators of us. And of the Lord, for you received the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, 
Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth. And notice the superlative that Paul has. It's gone forth everywhere. I'm all the way here in Athens. I've gotten to Corinth. And I hear about the power of the witness of the Thessalonians so that we need not say anything. It's easy for us to think that this is something we just pass over. But I I want you to hear what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, you Thessalonians looked to me and you imitated my faith. We want to be real hesitant. We We want to couch things. We want to say things like, do as I say. Not as I do. Follow what I say, but don't follow how I live. And Paul has no hesitation saying, I am following Jesus. You follow me as I follow Jesus. And that is going to give you a path of what it looks like to live an authentic faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, without any stuttering, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, how did Paul do this? Paul is facing opposition. He's facing persecution. And guess what? The Thessalonians, they're facing persecution. They're facing difficulty. And so the Thessalonians, in their young faith, they get to look to Paul. Paul, how did you face opposition? How did you face persecution? And so they're looking to Paul saying, Paul is paving a way. And you know what Paul is doing? Paul is saying, I'm looking to Jesus. Jesus He faced persecution. He faced opposition. Do you remember about 20 years ago? There was a craze. You could go to Lifeway or Family Christian Store when those were in existence, and you could get a bracelet, and it was a WWJD bracelet. Do you remember that, don't you? What would Jesus do? Paul has no hesitation. Although this might sound strange to us, Paul has no hesitation branching those out to to have not just a WWJD bracelet, but he would have a WWPD bracelet. What would Paul do? And, And he would say to the Thessalonians, you actually have become a bracelet too because there are other people around Macedonia everywhere who are saying, what would the Thessalonians do? And you know one of the ways that we figure out in life What would Jesus do is by looking to faithful brothers and sisters who have paved the way of faithfulness, who have faced trials, who have faced difficulties. Because Paul is saying, I've had a platform of pain. And you've been able to see me plant this church in the platform of pain. And now guess what, Thessalonians? You have a platform of pain. You have a platform of persecution and other people are looking to see how you will walk the walk and how you will talk the talk and you're an advertisement for me. Do you know one of the greatest gifts that God gives us to share the gospel to family and friends is them being able to see the faith of God displayed in the suffering of his saints. It's not fun. But he says, yea, I walk through, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. 
And it's only when you're walking through the valley of pain, and it's only when you're walking through the valley of difficulty, it's only when you walk through the valley of betrayal, it's only when you walk through the valley of a diagnosis, it's only when you walk through the valley of persecution and opposition that you truly can feel his rod and his staff comforting you. It's then when you feel that the strength of the Lord is with me even in the midst of my weakness. The Thessalonians knew this. Paul knew this. Jesus knew this. And you do too. It's not a fun journey. But it is a journey that God allows us to travel to point people to the power of our God. That when we suffer... When we go through opposition and trials, that we do that in a way that allows people to say, what what would Paul do? What would the Thessalonians do? What would you do? Two weeks ago, Danielle and I tried out a new restaurant. It's right here in town. We didn't go to AL.com to figure out where to go eat at lunch on a Friday a couple weeks ago. We didn't check Instagram accounts to see what people were posting. We went there because some of our friends had gone there the night before, and we interacted with them, and they said, you've got to try this out. And do you know why people try out the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know why they turn to him? Do you know why people visit a church? Is it because uh, solely because of the website? Well, yeah, that's important. But do you know most often why they do it is because you have lived before them and they see something distinctive about your life. They hear something different about you, the way you talk, the way you act, the way that you live, even in the midst of pain. And they say there is something different about that person. And Jesus told us this, that we're light and we're salt. And our light is to shine in a dark world. And when our light shines, people see our good deeds and they pat us on the back. No, they glorify our Father in heaven. So Paul is saying, what would Jesus do? And the Thessalonians say, what would Paul do? And the Christians around Macedonia say, what would the Thessalonians do? And 2,000 years later, someone in your work in your school, in your family, is asking, what would fill in your blank with your name? What would you do? And that, my friends, is how the faith is passed down from one generation to the next. So I ask you not what would you do, but I ask you, what are you doing to live a life of holiness and distinction to shine brightly for him. Let us pray.